all of the people who have brought eggs and candy and who have signed up to volunteer. We have very close to 6,000 eggs, so that is awesome. Give yourselves a round of applause. So we still need candy and some eggs. If you want to donate money towards eggs, talk to Mike Johnson. He has got like 2,000 that he needs some money for. So also we need some money for Bibles to give the kids. So um, you can either give that to me or one of the deacons. Um, next Saturday, or this coming Saturday, is our planning day. So if you signed up to help for that, to pass out flyers or fill eggs, that's at 10. The hunt is next Saturday. And if you could all please be praying for all of the families and kids who come through our doors, they will hear about the gospel and hopefully have fun and maybe come back the following Sunday for Easter. So if you have any questions, please let me know. Thank you all so much for all of your help with this. I appreciate it very much. Well, good morning. I'm going to introduce Matt to you this morning. He was here about a month ago. We had a potluck and a chance for you to meet him and his wife and his daughter. And he's back here this morning to preach for us. So we're happy to have Matt with us. He comes from Centennial, Colorado, where he serves um, at Orchard Bible Church. Bivocationally, which means he preaches for no pay there, <laughs> right? He's going to Moody Bible Institute, taking online classes to finish up his degree there. And as was the case last week, we'll ask again that you give the Pastor Search team your feedback, as you did last week. So Matt is here to close out our series on First Peter, and we're glad to have you here. Good morning. I'd like to start off by saying uh, thank you all for having me here this morning. It's truly a privilege to be able to come up out here and open up God's Word with you, and uh, my wife and I just want to say thank you for your hospitality last time and again today. Truly, I'm humbled to be considered for this position, so thank you very much. I was telling the guys back there, they, they said, why didn't you bring any of that Colorado sunshine with you? And I said, well, I've actually been praying the past few days that the Lord would uh, have some overcast here so you didn't get the glare off of my head. So he's smiling upon you, I assure you. All right, let's dive into our text this morning, which is in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to start at verse 6. This is God's Word. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a 
Faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, our Father. We are so very thankful for the opportunity to come here this morning and open up your holy word. We pray that you would bless it. Change hearts this morning, Lord. Conform us to the image of your Son by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get started in the exposition of our verses before us this morning, I want us to first take a minute to consider the author of this great epistle, the inspired writer of this text, none other than the Apostle Peter. Since Bob started you out in January, Creekside has been reading from and studying this letter penned by Simon Peter, whom some might call the lead apostle, the apostle who is in fact closest to our Lord during the time of his earthly ministry. This bold apostle in his letter to the churches in northern Asia Minor has told us of a new birth to a living hope. He has encouraged us to love one another. He has confirmed that believers in Christ are indeed a chosen people, living stones. Therefore, he calls us to good works and holy living before the Lord. He has laid out the specifics of biblical submission in marriage and our local church, and of course, in our individual walk with the Lord. He has called on us to be hospitable, to be good stewards of God's grace, and to devote our lives to all things that bring glory to our Father in heaven. He has also called on us to share in the sufferings of Christ, even unto death. Indeed, the author of this letter writes with not only the inspiration of the Holy Spirit behind him, but he also writes with an overwhelming confidence in the truth of his convictions. And what we've seen here is a natural, authentic boldness that surpasses the mere passion and fervor that only has its mind sent on temporary things and earthly things, on the things of man. And we know that that was a struggle at times for Peter, right? We've seen in this letter just how intensely unwavering this apostle has been in the eternal truths, but it wasn't always that way for him. And I want to take you back to that night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, because I want you to see here the mindset and the heart of the apostle Peter during our Lord's last days on earth, and then I want us to examine our text in light of what happened that night and the next morning, okay? So we remember that from that night that Jesus' disciples had gone before him to prepare the, mat, uh, the Passover feast. And throughout the four gospel accounts we see in the upper room, Jesus washed their feet. He instituted the Lord's Supper with them. He again foretold of his betrayal, and he even publicly identified the man who would be guilty of turning him over to the chief priests, Judas Iscariot, who is now dismissed by Jesus. And we are told that the remaining disciples and Jesus went out and they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them all, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In comes Peter, the author of our letter, who says to Jesus, 
even though they will all fall away, I will not. In John's Gospel, he says, I will lay down my life for you. Pretty bold, right? Very emphatic and zealous in his commitment to the Lord. Willing to risk everything, everything, even his own life for what he believes about Jesus. But what does Jesus say to Peter? Luke twenty-two thirty-one, and this is key to our text this morning. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Again, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you not only to prison, but to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And of course, we know that that's what happened the next morning. And then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, saying, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What happened to the author of our epistle that night? And how is he now able to so authoritatively lay out instruction for Christian living and, and Christian suffering in this letter before us today? Well, a number of things happened uh, between that night and the writing of this epistle. Uh, he had witnessed Jesus being mocked and, and beaten and, and spit upon. He had certainly heard of the Lord being scourged and hung on a Roman cross. He witnessed the sky going dark for three hours in the middle of the day as God the Father turned His back on God the Son. Three days later, he personally witnessed Jesus on earth after having been raised from the dead. Forty days he spent with the resurrected Lord who ascended into heaven right before his very eyes. And less than two weeks after that, he received the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost where he proclaimed to the chosen people of God that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. He performed miracles to authenticate this gospel message. In the name of Jesus, the lame walked, the blind could see, and the dead were raised. And God used Peter to bring these things about. He saw Samaritans saved. He saw Gentiles saved. He continued to be persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, and yet he remained a pillar in the early church, penning these two letters to both new believers in Asia Minor and to Christians throughout the past 2,000 years. Now, I would say those are some pretty significant life-changing events, and that Simon Peter is now more than qualified to be an authority on the topics mentioned in this epistle. 
But I also think that there was one other event that was monumental in the regenerating work of Peter, and, and we read it earlier. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, when you have been turned, when you have been converted, when your faith has not fallen, strengthen your brothers. Not only the remaining ten disciples that night, not only the early Palestinian Christians, not only the Jewish Christians, not only the early church as a whole, but also us here this morning. And every other believer around this world who has ever read the letter contained in the inspired, inerrant, infallible Holy Scriptures of God. Not only does divine inspiration give the text before us this morning validity and reason to trust it, which is sufficient, of course, but also Peter's firsthand experience of being attacked by Satan and having his faith tested. What a comfort it is to see how Peter experienced suffering, experienced defeat, experienced failure, and yet look how the Lord still used him. Look how, look how he used him to have an impact on the lives of the multitudes throughout the history of the world. It's encouraging. Listen to the parallels here in our text. Starting in verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Was Peter humbled that night? You better believe it. Luke 22.61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how He had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You better believe that he was humbled that night. And honestly, this is where God desires all of us to be. You know, Jesus said it himself, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual depravity. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their absolute inability to do anything good in this world apart from the saving work and amazing grace of God in heaven. This is where Peter found himself this morning. Peter was humbled. And then he says something that should cause great joy in the hearts of every believer here this morning. The Lord the author of everything that you and I have ever seen in our lives, the sovereign creator of everything, the actual author of every single word in this book, has invited His people. He has invited us, true believers in Jesus Christ, to cast our anxieties on Him. Now the word cast literally means to, to throw something upon something or someone else. In this case, it's our anxieties our worries. And he's invited us to throw them upon the Lord Most High. Why? Because he cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for me. And it's just amazing to me to consider this. And I pray, Lord, that you would just give us the ability to even grasp what it is that we're saying here, that you're saying here, because it's just 
It's amazing to me. And then he goes on to say this. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. So just like the rest of this letter, he's talking to Christians here, to genuine born-again believers in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and he says, be sober-minded. He, he wants us to be clear-minded and alert. The, the NASB says, be of sober spirit. And now this isn't a reference to abstaining from too much of the physical elements of the world like wine, which may cause drunkenness, though there are plenty other places in Scripture which do, but this is a reference to staying awake, to staying, to staying alert, staying attentive, and not confused, not distracted. Do not let your mind be consumed by the temporary things of this world. He wants us to be clear-minded. You know, Wayne Grudem has said, the opposite of being sober-minded is a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which one sees and reacts to situations no differently than unbelievers. God's perspective on each event is seldom, if ever, even considered. We are to be sober-minded. Peter also says, be watchful. Like a soldier in combat who guards his post, who is responsible not only for his life, but also the lives of his unit around him at that moment, he must be on the lookout. This is no time to be lethargic or, or sleepy. He wants us to be alert and to be careful, to be self-controlled, to be clear-minded and, and watchful. And there's good reason for this. There's good reason for this because Peter says, still verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you believe in Satan? Do you believe in a literal figure named Satan, sometimes referred to as the devil, diabolos, the slanderer, the false accuser, the tempter, the wicked one, the, the ruler of this world, the god of this age? Do you believe that there is an actual, literal, evil, personal being who is cast down from heaven with a third of the heavenly host? some whom he has dominion over and is now roaming this earth and is referred to by the Apostle Paul as the prince of the power of the air. Do you believe in Satan? I hope you do. But, but unfortunately, if you do, you're in the minority here. Okay, Charles Spurgeon once said, I have often noticed that when a man has no devil, he has no God. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. Satan doesn't want us to believe that he exists. And the world, the world would like us to think that the devil is nothing more than some man-made concoction walking around in dark places with red tights, a pitchfork, and little horns sticking out of his head. Right? Or some little figure on our left shoulder that we can choose to obey or ignore depending on how much willpower we have. But is that what Scripture says? Is that what Peter says? No, Peter says the devil is a roaring lion. And he is seeking someone to devour. He is prowling around the earth seeking somebody he may devour. He is very real and he is very successful in his venture depending on whom it is he wants to devour, of course. Well, if you're in Christ this morning... You know that Satan is very real. 
And Peter specifically points out that he is your enemy. See that in verse 8? Your adversary, your enemy. Literally, like in a courtroom, he's, uh, the, he's the accuser and he's pointing at you and saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. See, the ultimate goal of Satan is to somehow rob God of his glory. It was that way before man existed and it's that way today. He wants to drive a wedge between us and our God, between anything in our lives that may bring glory to God, our, our relationships with one another, our, our marriages, our ministries, our communion with the Lord. Uh, he comes after individuals. He comes after families. He comes after church leaders. He comes after churches as a whole. And Peter says he wants to consume us. Literally meaning to drink down whole, like the great fish that swallowed Jonah. In one gulp is what our adversary longs to do to us. How does he accomplish this? Or how does he suppose to accomplish this robbing God of his glory? Answer, by seeking to destroy the faith of his children, by, by seeking to destroy our faith, by, by sifting us like wheat to test the genuineness of our faith, seeking to destroy our faith in God's love for us, God's provision for us, God's sovereignty over our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. He seeks to destroy our, our faith and our position before God. He always seeks to make us doubt our Lord, to make us question our relationship with Him, and He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't hold anything back. He will take anything from you to accomplish this. You remember Job, don't you? The, this righteous man of God, very prosperous, very obedient, very devout. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. He's prowling. He's, he's walking up and down. He's seeking. He's seeking. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There, there is none like him on all the earth. He's a blameless and upright man, and he fears God and turns from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job, fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You see the deception here? You see the attempted manipulation and the doubt casting, the, the false accusations? And he goes on to say, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and behold, he will curse you to your face. And he goes on to take everything from Job that this unbelieving world holds so dearly, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity. All in an attempt to get Job to curse God, to take away from God's glory. I want you to notice the striking difference between God and Satan. God wants us to be humble and dependent on Him so that at the proper time, He may exalt us. Satan wants us to be proud and self-sufficient. God, uh, God wants us 
to be comforted. He seeks to comfort us and to give us rest. Satan seeks to strike terror in us, which causes panic. God seeks and promises to care for us. Satan wants to kill us and consume us. And this is why, my brothers and sisters, we must be sober-minded. This is why we must be watchful. Just as if we were in the middle of the wilderness in Africa and we were dropped in the middle of nowhere with wild beasts prowling around among us, we wouldn't sleep, you know? We wouldn't be distracted, but, but we, rather we would be on high alert. We would be at full attention, right? And this is what Peter is saying that we must do spiritually. We have an enemy who longs to consume us and to destroy our faith. Christians are constantly being attacked by this evil adversary. So the question is, what now? We know that we have an, an enemy who seeks to devour us, that seeks to cast doubt in our hearts, to disrupt our fellowship with our Creator, to, to cause disunity within congregations and our relationships with one another. Now what? How do we avoid falling prey to this roaring lion? And Peter says in verse 9, Resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him, firm in your faith. This command alone gives great hope this morning, my brothers and sisters. This gives us hope that our Christian resistance to the devil can and will be successful. Again, Grudem says, while it's wrong to ignore the devil's existence, it's also wrong to cower before him in fear. You know, it's been rightly said that the danger to the Christian is not that he is helpless before the devil. The danger to the Christian is that he will fail to resist. That he will not watch and pray. That he will not put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 and take the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. The, the Word of God. That's the same weapon that Jesus used in His testing in the desert. And it's ours to use in His name. Amen? Now, of course, theologically... Jesus Christ's death and resurrection won the decisive victory in the war against the powers of darkness, but this doesn't mean that the battle is over, that the struggle is over here. This, this doesn't mean we have immunity to the influence of Satan or his demonic powers. Otherwise, Peter, his counsel to resist Satan would make no sense here, right? See, we are not called to be passive. We are not called to be apathetic, to let go and let God, as they say. That's not biblical. No, rather, we are to remain steadfast. We are to resist the devil, standing firm in the faith through communion with the Lord and through his word. James, in his letter, in almost a perfect parallel, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we have Peter, James, and Paul saying, Resist. Remain steadfast. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Peter also gives us another means of encouragement in this process of resisting the devil. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that, knowing that, the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let me ask you, have you ever gone through such intense suffering that you've thought to yourself, I am the only one who has to endure this? 
Nobody else can possibly understand what I'm going through right now because it's so specific to me. Have you ever said that? I've said that many times. I'm all alone. I'm all alone here in these storms. I'm all alone in this suffering. Again, Peter is writing here to these fairly new believers in Asia Minor. Now, there is outright persecution going on here, and he knows that. They're being imprisoned for their faith in Christ. They're being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But he writes this to them as an encouragement. If we look at verse 13, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. In other words, here we are in Babylon, which is symbolically used here to reference Rome, the epicenter of Christian persecution during that time. And the she that he says here is a reference to the church in Rome. So you have these persecutors believers in Rome saying to these believers in Asia Minor, we greet you, we know what you're going through, and we want to encourage you to stand firm in the faith, brothers and sisters. You see, we are not alone in our struggles, whatever they may be, however the enemy tries to devour you and rob you of your faith in the Lord. You can trust that your fellow Christians are experiencing the same things all around the world, all around this country, all around the state, all around Urbandale, and right here at Creekside. We are, we are all going through this together, and the Lord has given us not only His holy word to strengthen and assure our faith, but he's also given us one another. Now, I have to share this story. About two and a half years ago, my grandfather died, and I was very close to my grandfather growing up, but like the majority of my, the rest of my closest family, he didn't follow Christ, and he was definitely one of my biggest antagonists when I came to faith at 23, but the Lord allowed us to remain in contact, and the Lord allowed us to remain cordial for the most part. And I'd often attempt to share the truth of Christ with him as well as the rest of my family, but uh, he wasn't really interested in hearing it. I especially tried to share my faith with him in the last few weeks of his life. and In fact, a couple of days before he passed away, which we knew was eminent because of his worsening condition, a couple of days before he died, I got to share the pure biblical gospel with him one more time. Of course, I can't tell his heart. I can't tell if he was truly regenerated that night. You know, he talked about some Catholic doctrine, and as much as I tried to warn him of the errors, he remained pretty confident that he had been good enough to get to heaven, if there even was such a place. But what happened just a few days later is something that I'll never forget. I was actually present at his house when he passed away, and I can remember going in to his room to see him right afterwards, and there he was, but you see, it wasn't really him. You know, it wasn't really him, it was just his body, you know, it was just this lifeless shell with no breath, no emotion, no gleam in his eyes, and and here I was alone with what I had always physically recognized to be my grandfather. And, and I can remember just gazing at this lifeless body and, and, and saying, Grandpa, Grandpa. And I actually literally verb verbalized this, knowing I wouldn't get a response. 
and I didn't. He had gone into eternity, and there was nothing, nothing that anybody in this world could do about it. There was nothing that any doctor could do about it. There was nothing that any amount of money could do with it, any amount of success or power or fame or whatever you want to call it. They couldn't do anything about it. And I can remember thinking to myself here, I don't know where he's just gone. I don't know if he's right now in the presence of his heavenly creator for all of eternity or if he's in an eternity under divine wrath of a holy God and divine judgment from a holy God for not bending the knee to Christ in this life. And I was scared. And I was terrified. I mean, sure, I trust in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of man, but still, that's a pretty intense moment. And so what next? Where do I turn? Where do I go to communicate these fears that I have? Was it to my unbelieving family members who were gathered around the bed at this time? I loved them like crazy, but am I bringing up the possible destination of their recently deceased father's eternal soul would have only infuriated them? can't really tell them. I can't go to my blood family with these concerns. Of course, I prayed and I talked with my wife about it, who's a believer. She understood, but, but what was the most impactful to me was when I went to church the next Sunday, the open time of the Lord's Supper service. And I can remember looking around and looking at my brothers and sisters here and, and recognizing the people in the pews as my actual family my eternal family, and I have done it several times since. But I can remember telling them of my inability to express my suffering to my earthly family and how thankful I was that the Lord had showed me that it was indeed them who was my mother and my brother and my sister. And they understood what I was talking about because they had experienced the same type of suffering. Now listen, whether it's a loved one who has died apart from Christ, an illness that you've been diagnosed with that's uncurable, a rebellious child who has turned their back on you and turned to this world, an abusive husband, a broken marriage, some form of persecution at work or at your house, you know, whether it's a broken family, whether it's feelings of despair, struggling with temptations to sin, hopelessness, unbelief, anxiety, depression, lament over the current state of this fallen world, or denying the Lord before the rooster crows. Take comfort this morning, my brothers and sisters, that you are not alone. One commentator writes, like soldiers whose morale is strengthened by knowing that the whole army is engaged in the same battle hardships they are in, these Christians should be strengthened to resist the devil and not to give in to persecution by the knowledge that they are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Not only are you not alone, but you have a perfect, all-knowing, holy, sovereign Father in heaven, a Father who will never disappoint, a Father who cares for you, a Father who has encouraged you through this text to cast your anxieties, your worries, your burdens upon Him and has equipped you with His Word and has equipped you with His heavenly armor, the body of and he has equipped you with the body of Christ to stand firm against the fiery darts 
of the evil one. And amazingly, this is all sovereignly ordained by the Lord. Peter said it himself back in chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, excuse me. He allows us to go through these trials. He allows us to be tested, to be tempted. He allows us to be broken down and humbled so that he may build us back up and exalt us in due time. After you have suffered a little while, Peter says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, meaning we will suffer in this life if we are his followers, guaranteed, until he calls us home. After we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Again, Peter's restoration from his own experience of pain and failure on the night of the Lord's betrayal puts credibility behind this promise that we just read in verse 10, right? And he writes it to strengthen his brothers and to strengthen us this morning. And as to say, my family, my family, Regardless of our geographical locations, regardless of our differences in age, our ethnicity, our our backgrounds, our physical characteristics, our social status, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Jesus Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. By His amazing grace, which Peter says in verse 12 is the very reason for writing this letter, the grace of our Lord, the possessor and giver of all grace, He has called us to this wonderful salvation, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Through no doing of our own, He has adopted us as sons and daughters. He has given us eternal life in His presence, not only because of our good works, nor by anything that we must do or anything that we have to do, but only based on our faith in His Son. Our faith in His Son, which is also a free gift. And he gives us that same grace, that amazing grace to restore us, to strengthen us, to confirm us, and establish us. Those are, those are four different terms, but they all lead to the same emphatic point. The same Lord in heaven who has called us to this wonderful fellowship for all of eternity will strengthen and allow us to remain firm on the foundation of the rock of Christ so that we are able to endure till the end. So what's our response? What is our response this morning? Well, as we gather around the table now and the bread and the cup, I I ask you to consider the ultimate greater to lesser argument. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will He not also graciously with Him restore His people? 
He who did not spare the body of His Son being broken and hung on a Roman cross, how will He not also confirm us into this wonderful salvation? He who did not spare the blood of His Son, but poured out for all the sins of all who would believe, how will He not also strengthen us and establish us to withstand and resist the fiery darts of our enemy who wants to devour us? To, to stand firm in our faith, knowing that we are all experiencing the same attacks in this life. How will He not also increase our faith during this time? During these times of suffering? He's promised that He will. Oh, my brothers and sisters, cling to His holy Word. Cling to this truth, to the only truth in this world, the only hope in this world. Cling to the cross. Cling to the cross of Christ. And if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you, and you have not bent the knee to Christ, I beg you to do so. I beg you to do the same. We are not this body. Okay? We are not these clothes. We, we are not our cars or our jobs, our entertainment, our sports team. Okay? We, 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 our lives are like a mist. James says our lives are like a mist. You go outside in the cold weather, you exhale, you see your mist, it's gone. And that's what our lives are. They're a vapor. So I plead with you to put your trust in Christ this morning. And if you want to know more about what that means to do so, just stick around and talk with me afterwards. I have a 6 o'clock flight, but I'm happy to reschedule it if you want to talk about things of eternal consequences. Otherwise, just seek out any elders or deacons and just ask. Satan doesn't want you to ask. And Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Behold, today is the day of salvation, so come to the cross. In the last section of this letter, Peter proclaims, to God be dominion forever and ever. To God be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And, and I think that's a perfect way to end this letter and to end this current series of 1 Peter as resident aliens. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much again just for the opportunity to come here and open your word. We know that around the world there are some who would be killed for even mentioning the name Jesus Christ. So to be able to come here and open this up and be encouraged by it, strengthened, restored, confirmed by your holy word, Lord. We are forever grateful, and we, we can't wait to spend eternity praising your name for it. I pray for Creekside. I pray for these brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would just strengthen them and draw them closer to you through the preaching of your word, Lord. Be glorified in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, God's own son.
for the victory he gives us over sin and death and hell and Satan. May you send us out this week in the power of the Spirit. May we be renewed and encouraged. May we stand fast. May we resist the enemy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Stick around afterwards and say hi to Matt. Um, And don't forget about the Easter egg hunt coming up.